if the one nation that God had raised up to be uh, one of the key reasons why the state of Israel is existing today, that was uh, a very important reason for us. But uh, it also, as, as if you followed through our studies in the book of Ezekiel, we asked the question about what would happen to the United States, and is the United States in prophecy? Uh, and we, we spend a little bit of time in, 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 uh, in uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 38, uh, and, and there's a verse there, I believe it's in verse 16, that, that talks about the sons of Tarshish. The sons of Tarshish, would, would, you know, many people believe that because of the connection with Tarshish and Spain and England and that, that region of Europe uh, being so settled in the United States during the, the 15th, 16th century, 17th century. Uh, and uh, in all that, uh, uh, we certainly had a, a, a calling from the Lord, you know, to be a nation that also would later on be uh, one uh, key element in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations, to the, the whole world. Uh, and, uh, but now we see here, so close to the time of the end, uh, how this nation has lost that uh, that foundation. You know, when you consider uh, you know, Psalm 11, verse 3, you know, if the foundations be destroyed, you know, what, what shall the righteous do? Well, what we do is what we're supposed to do, which is we're to, you know, if, if my people, you know, Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will heal their sin, and I will, uh, I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. So we have to keep praying, and we have to keep trusting the Lord. You know, Reverend, we do have a very critical um, uh, election coming up, and uh, and we as believers in Jesus Christ in this nation, though we're not of this world, we're in this world, and we've been given uh, uh, a responsibility. Uh, it's a privilege, but it's a responsibility. That is, you know, to be actively involved in, in, the, uh, in, in the affairs of our, of our country because co nations will be judged. Nations will be judged. And uh, so we, we need to pray for God's wisdom you know, about this election and not to look at, at, at personalities, but actually look at the issues and, and see how the word of God has, has really uh, established a foundation for many issues. One, the, the, one that I believe is, is probably the main issue is life, what life is. <clears throat> and what people do today in, in, trying to, in trying to justify things like abortion and, and all other kinds of, of uh, uh, euthanasia and all other kinds of things. I mean, these are, these are issues that we need to remember. God has, has given us uh, laws about, uh, laws that uh, you know, he wrote with, with the, the finger of his hand onto stone and so we have to we need to really pray and ask God you know for wisdom in, in this uh, in this elect upcoming election so anyway pray for this nation Hosea chapter 10 we've been seeing what a nation has to go through when they've taken their eyes off of God and they're a nation that was called by God they're a nation that was chosen by God the nation of Israel. And for many years, they 
trusted the Lord. They feared the Lord. They saw the greatness of God in the wilderness. They experienced the, the strength of God and in, in, the, in the deliverance from, from 430 years of bondage in Egypt. And then uh, they began to look at the nations around them. And they were intrigued by the way that they had their gods and they worshiped them in various ways and forms, which of course, <clears throat> as we have been studying, has involved a lot of uh, fleshly and sensual uh, in, uh, things that uh, were involved in, in their rites and rituals. And the Israelites said, we want gods like theirs. And then they saw that they had kings and they said, we want a king like the other nations. When God all along was their king. So we have seen, even in the book of Hosea, but we've seen it in many others, this downward spiral, this downward slide, if you will, of a nation that had been given God's presence, God's word, God's spirit, God's truth, God's plan, and they, they, were, they were told, follow this, obey, and I'll bless you. And every time they obeyed, God blessed them. But every time they got away, he would call them back. He said, return, return, return. There's a key verse that we'll see here in just a moment that's later on in the chapter, but I mean in the, uh, in the book. But um, it is something that we're leading to. Because if we only saw all of these indictments that God is placing upon Israel, and, and, and in particular the northern kingdom of Israel, throughout the first ten chapters of the book of Hosea, we would almost have to think that the Lord is just fed up to the point that he just is going to get rid of them. But that's not the case. And we'll see some of that in this passage tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, even though we study verses 1 and 2 very carefully. And then verse 3, we're going to kind of begin there tonight, even though we're going to be studying verses 4 through to the end. <clears throat> but I want to read this just to get our context back in place. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty or guilty. He shall break down their altars, he shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, we have no king because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do to us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Bethaven. Bethaven being the house of vanity, which is actually Bethel which is in the southern part of the northern kingdom. 
For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. It shall be also carried unto Assyria for a present uh, to King Yarev. King Yarev, we, we talked about back in chapter 5, Yarev really means the king of contention. It was probably describing of Salmaneser, the king of Assyria. We'll get to that. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills fall on us. So the Lord charged the people of the northern kingdom of Israel with selfishness and misusing their wealth, the very prosperity that came from the Lord himself but was used for the enhancing of their worship of other gods and idols. And that's what we dealt with in the first two verses last week. Now the appearance of a luxurious vine was a facade. For the vine itself was empty of good fruit. If it had any fruit whatsoever, it was sour grapes of no value as described in uh, Isaiah chapter 5. But the problem was clearly declared by the Lord. And he declares it in verse 2 where he says their heart is divided. The people's heart is divided. Now I find it interesting that, that it's that it's formed in, in the singular. And I think I mentioned this last week there toward the end that, that a nation's heart should be united. A nation's heart, especially a nation whose God is the Lord, should be united, should be one heart. Just like the church needs to have one heart for Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. You know, we, we are to be one in the Lord. And this nation should have had one heart for Israel and one heart for their God, who was their king. But the Lord said it best when he said the people's heart was divided. That singular heart was no longer singular. They gave only lip service to the Lord, but they clearly served their own lusts and their own desires. But that was the way the nation itself began when Jeroboam had taken the nation and, and, and formed their, their uh, <clears throat> designed and crafted their images that they established in Bethel in the southern part of the northern kingdom and in Dan in the northern part of the northern kingdom. So they, they did not have to travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. So for this they would be judged. They would be held guilty for this. The Lord would break down their altars. He would destroy their sexually explicit statues, their images, and their pillars. Judgment was indeed coming. Now a second action that the Lord was going to take against the people and the nation was taking their rulers from them. And that's what we didn't really get to last week. So let's look at verse 3 very quickly. Verse 3 of Hosea. It says, For now they shall say, We have no king. Because we feared not the Lord. Now, see, they're answering their own. They're, they're, I mean, they're answering their own uh, uh, 
the, the, the own, their own indictment that God has placed upon them. They say, we, we're guilty. We have no king because we feared not the Lord. And then they ask the question, what then should a king do to us? So the people had failed to trust the Lord, to fear the Lord, to worship the Lord. They had just stopped doing any of that. They didn't trust the Lord anymore. They trusted in their own gods. They trusted more in kings and in princes than they did in the God who created them and made them in, in his image. They failed to fear the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but they didn't have any wisdom. They, they, they didn't fear the Lord in reverence. They didn't fear the Lord in honor or respect. They didn't have an awe of God. I wonder how many people have an awe toward God today who say that they're believers in Jesus Christ. Who look for ways of entertainment and being entertained in, in, a, in a church service rather than really come to worship God and to listen to God and to believe God and to believe his word and to say, Lord, if this is how I need to live, then I need to live it this way because it's your word. It's honoring the God who made us and created us and knows us and has given us life through Jesus Christ. The God who sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They failed to reverence the Lord and, then, and because of that they failed to worship him. And they worshiped other gods and they worshiped images. And because of their rebellion against the true God, his judgment would fall on them. The people would be totally helpless. So helpless that they would make a significant confession. That even if they had, even if they had a king, he would not be able to save them or help them. That's, that's the extent of what verse 3 says. Because we feared not the Lord, what then should a king do to us? In effect, what they're saying is, what, what should a king do for us? What could a king do for us? Being that we are totally helpless because God is judging us. And we didn't fear him. That even if they had a king, he would not, he would not be able to save them or help them. That was already so true with the northern kingdom of Israel. All of their kings Right? From the very beginning, all of their kings were evil. Every one of the kings of the northern kingdom were evil. There wasn't one good king. They weren't even, even close to being good. They were evil in the sight of the Lord. And as the hearts of the leaders, so goes the nation. Is there any wonder that we need to be praying for our own nation today? You know, we may be familiar with a statement made by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.31, the second part of the verse that says, if God be for us, who can be against us? I mean, we all should know that verse. But what the people in Israel were saying in this passage in Hosea, in effect, was, if God is against us, what could, it do? What, what could a king do for us if we had one? Now don't forget that toward the end of the northern kingdom of Israel, toward the end, they had all these kings assassinated. We've already covered that part in, in, in Hosea. 
King after king after king was being assassinated. God was taking those kings because they themselves were not helping the people. They were taking their people further and further away from God. Ultimately, the people will see that they brought this judgment upon themselves and the situation they were in was now hopeless. This was a hopeless situation for the northern kingdom of Israel. But here was the reality. This was where God wanted them. That's the reality. This was where God wanted his people. Not to rely on a man or to rely on a king, but on the king of kings and on the Lord of lords. He wanted them to rely on him. So they made that confession. We have no king because we feared not the Lord. But the only truthful thing they have said over all this time that we've been looking at the book of Hosea. But then they said, what then should a king do to us? If we had one. Nothing. Because a king who is righteous could only do one thing. Lead the people in the fear of the Lord. Pray for the people. Do as Moses did, always before God for the people. Do as the good kings of Judah did before God for the people. So this was a very sad situation. If they would only return to the Lord, if they only returned to the Lord, what would happen? Is this not what the Lord always wanted for his people to begin with? That they would return to him? That's what he wanted. Not just for Israel, but also for Judah, as we'll see tonight. The Lord sought their return. I want to give you a few passages of scripture, and I want you to see how the Lord calls out to them to return to him but I also want you to take note of their responses. Take note of how they respond to the Lord. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Now primarily we're dealing with, this, with the nation of Judah. But Judah Judah's going to be in trouble after Israel's in trouble with, with Assyria. Assyria's going to come and take them into captivity, destroy them, and, you know, and, and take, carry everybody else to Assyria. And then a few years later... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and, and take the southern kingdom of Judah and overtake them and, and of course destroy the city of Jerusalem and take all of the, the Jews from, from uh, the area of Jerusalem and, and uh, the tribes of uh, Judah and Benjamin to take them into captivity for 70 years. But it's the same principle here. It just took, it just took Judah longer to become disobedient to the Lord. It wasn't hard for Israel to become disobedient to the Lord because they had kings that, that led them astray. But with Judah, they had good kings and bad kings. Eventually, it came down to the bad kings. Verse 11 of Jeremiah 18 says, Now therefore go, 
2, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way. Judgment is coming. I am framing this judgment upon you because I want you to come back to me. So return ye now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. In other words, come back to me. Listen to me. Believe me. Trust in me. Worship me. And I will bless you. That, that's really what we know God wants to do to his people if they will come and obey him. So that's what he says. Return ye now everyone from his evil way. Look at their response in verse 12. And they said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices. And we will every one do the imagination of his evil heart. Can you imagine saying that to a God who says, I don't want to destroy you, but I'm going to, I'm going to come down on you and I'm going to judge you for your disobedience and your rebellion against me. And he cries out and he says, return. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent of your sins. Come back to me. The door's wide open. Was the door not wide open during the time of Noah when the ark was built and the door was wide open for people? For, I mean, there, there was enough room. But only eight people went into the ark. And the scriptures are very clear that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which means that he went out and told people, beware of the time that is coming. God is going to judge the world for the sins of this world. And they, want, they went on living. They were married and, and giving in marriage and eating and drinking and doing everything. They just went on. They just said, hey, that's what this world is like right now. There's only one ark today, and that ark is Jesus Christ. And the gate is still open. The gate is still open. How many are coming? How many are saying, we'll walk after our own devices? This is why it's critical for the church to be the church. This is why it's critical for the church to really and truly get into the word of God and teach the word of God and tell people, listen, this world is going to be no more after a while. Because God has said, I'm going to come and, and the heaven and the earth will be destroyed. There's coming a time when someone is going to come and, 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 and deceive the world. We call him the Antichrist, but we know prophetically that he's going to come and he's going to, you know, he's going to turn people to a, a one world government, a one world religion. All these things are happening already. It's happening in, 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 right before our eyes. People say we will walk after our own devices. But I'm hearing that, folks, I'm hearing that even in, 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 in so-called churches today. Where they're more concerned about the flesh than they are concerned about the spirit. Where they're more concerned about the body than they are about the head. Where money is more important to the charlatans that are going out and, 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 and ripping people off. 
by saying you can have whatever you want in this life. You should be, you should be rich and you should have it all. It's just sad to see many people are deceived by that. People having, you know, all these kind of so-called, you know, worship services and everybody's raising their hands and all, but it's all about, it's all about what, what they can have, what they, you know, it's, it's, it's like just uh, providing, you know, uh, that everything in the scriptures is all about us. It's not, it's about God and it's about Christ and it's about eternity. Jeremiah 25, verses 5 through 7. They, say, they said, Turn ye again now, everyone, from his evil way and from the evil of your doings. God, of course, sending out his prophets and his messengers with the word of God. Turn ye again now, everyone, from his evil way and from the evil of your doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them and provoke me, not to anger with the works of your hands. And I will do you no hurt. What is their response? Verse 7. Yet you have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. They responded by continuing to do their own devices. Jeremiah 35, verse 15. I have sent also unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now every man from his evil way, and amend your doings, <coughs> and go not <coughs> after other gods to serve them, and you shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your fathers. What a promise that is. Just return, amend your ways, don't go after other gods, don't serve them, and you shall dwell in the land that I've given you. Seems like a, a pretty simple proposition, and a very beneficial one at that. Don't, don't you agree? I mean, wow, well, 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 just come back to me and, and, and serve me and, and, and amend your ways and, and live righteously and godly in this present age. Do these things. And you can be in the land and, 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 and you can dwell there. But look at the response. But you have not inclined your ear nor hearkened unto me. I want to listen to that. Very same thing where people are just saying today, I, I, don't, I don't want to listen to, you know, the, these guys that just preach out of the Bible. Yeah, they, they just read too much of the Bible. Oh, give me a verse or two that make me feel good, and then, you know, then we can jump and, and laugh and sing and go have coffee later on here and there, and we can do all these kind of good stuff. But is that what Jesus died for? Think about what we, what we read and what we studied this past weekend about Jesus on the cross and the last two weekends of Jesus getting to the cross and what he suffered for you and for me. I, I mean, I, I, I'm one who wants, I want, I want the joy of the Lord. I rejoice in the wonders of the beauties of God's holiness and righteousness and and uh, you know we, we 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 have fellowship with one with another and we we we, we, we 
we just enjoy the, the presence of, of the saints and all. But, but you know what? There's a, there's a time to be serious in here with God's word. It's a time to focus on what God is doing, what God is saying, what God wants us to do. There's a time. This is the time. Now, of course, we find Hosea giving this very same message to Israel. Just go over to chapter 14, verse 1. We'll get back to it later, of course, but again, notice the wording. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. And again, we'll come back to it, but the point is, this is the message of Hosea the prophet sent by God to his people to say, I love you, I care for you, I want the best for you, but I need you to return to me because right now you are living for the enemy. And you're worshiping and serving other gods and not me. And I'm the one that has provided for you. I'm the one that has given you life. I'm the one that has given you breath. I'm the one that has provided for you and you've given all of these gods and images the glory and not me. So now as we press on in our text, the Lord charges the people with more things, more crimes, if you will. As we press on in our text, the Lord charges the people with dishonesty and with deceit, along with perverting justice. Let's, let's read verses 4 through 8. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. And by the way, that not only with God, but with others as well, as we'll see in just a moment. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Hemlock, of course, is poison. The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth Avon, house of vanity, but it's actually Bethel, which is at the southern part of, of, of Israel, where one of the golden calves was situated. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. They're weeping because God has taken away their golden calf. It shall be also carried unto Assyria for a present to King Yareb. Which, by the way, when we studied in chapter 5, verse 13, we said he was, it's really not a name, it's a title, King of Contention. And if it's connected to Assyria, then it has to be Shalmaneser, and we'll see that later on, and we'll connect the dots here. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Ephraim and Israel, of course, are the same. It was just many times given the, the, the name of, uh, of, uh, of Ephraim because it's the largest tribe of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And then as for Samaria, verse 7, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, vanity, 
shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. In other words, where they used to really spend a lot of time in worshiping their foreign gods are now going to be uh, empty, desolate. And the only thing that's going to grow there is uh, weeds. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Interesting. The Lord declared the people guilty of making promises while knowing full well that they would not keep them. That, of course, is true about them and the Lord. They made promises to the Lord, they didn't keep them, and he knew that they weren't going to keep those promises. But even when they took an oath, Swearing to keep their promises, they failed to fulfill their word. The, 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 the passage here refers to alliances. Alliances that uh, they made with stranger foreign powers to, to whom they promised loyalty and faithfulness without the intention to be faithful. Oh, you, by the way, that goes, all, that goes on all the time at the United Nations. This way, global politics happened. Everybody making promises that they're not going to keep. And how sad it is, you know, I gotta, I gotta throw this in. How, how sad it is that when you look at those nations that are that are called to to uh, 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 to head the uh, human rights commissions are all nations that have no human rights in their own countries. What a wonderful organization the United Nations is. They just happen to be on our shores. All their, all their words were vain. Getting back to Israel, all their words were vain, and in the end, they, they, those, were, those words were as bitter as gall, hemlock, poison. Uh, it represents judgment, judicial it's a judicial verdict, as it were. The word judgment here is a judicial verdict springing up as hemlock, as, as vo- a venom or a poison in the furrows of the field, the furrows being the rows or the, the ridges of the field. That's all they would have, is poison. A case in point would be the breaking of Israel's appointment through King Hosea, of Israel to Shalmaneser, king of, of Assyria, to making a covenant. He, he breaks a covenant with Shalmaneser to make a covenant with So, S-O, who was the king of Egypt at the time. And that's stated for us in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. And I want to read from verse 1 on because, I, again, I, I'd like to establish context here <clears throat> so that you'll know at the time that in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of, of Judah, began Hosea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. So it gives us a time frame. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, which every king of the northern kingdom of Israel did. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his servant and gave him presents. So they had a, they had a, you know, I mean, he bowed down to Shalmaneser. 
which you're not supposed to do, really, you know, bow down to. Now, if you're a sovereign nation and you have a, you're a king or, you know, or a leader, you don't bow down to other nations. But obviously, in a serious time, <laughs> they were much more powerful. And if you didn't bow down, you'd probably lose your head. So uh, he became uh, Shalmaneser's king uh, uh, of Assyria. He became a servant and gave him gave him presents. I mean, began to pay tribute to the Assyrians. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea. So here he is on the side. He says, you know, giving presents. You know, you guys keep us safe on this side, and we'll serve you. But uh, Assyria. Uh, uh, Shalmaneser discovered that uh, Hosea was also working with their enemy, the enemy of Assyria being Egypt. <clears throat> For he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. In other words, well, the, the, you know, the tribute stopped, and whatever gifts he was, coming, he was bringing, he stopped bringing those gifts. He, he got a new friend now. You get a new friend, you start giving the new friend the stuff, you know. Big mistake, right? Why? Because it says, therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So, you know, I, I mean, well, that's, that's power, isn't it? Hosea should have trusted in the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel. Never did. He may have been worse than all the other kings. He didn't trust in, in the Lord. He trusted in alliances. He trusted in the flesh. He trusted in the world. All these kings were of the world. And the worst part of the world. They were even worse than Israel only because Israel at least had an opportunity to turn back to God. But they didn't do that. So for reasons such as this, the Lord pronounced a twofold judgment upon Israel. That's verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 tells us, uh, tell us that a day was coming when the people of Samaria would lose their so-called God, that golden calf idol of Bethel, or Beth-Aven, the city of vanity, the nation's, the nation's major worship center, or at least one of the major worship centers of, of, of Israel. The people and their false priests would tremble in fear and mourn its loss, for the victorious Assyrians would take the idol into exile and present it to their king as a gift. And I'm sure that Shalmaneser was, was saying, listen, you, you, you want to play games with me? This is what's going to happen to you. You play with the world, the world's going to get you. The second part of verse 6 refers to a day when the people would be disgraced and shamed because they trusted the false god that they had created for themselves. Shall be also carried into Assyria for a present of the king. Uh, Ephraim shall receive shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Disgraced. And then you look at verse 7. It says as for Samaria... Her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. Now, other translations would, would give you a little bit more of, a, of, of the, the more proper understanding of the word foam here. Because the word illustration in this verse is quite interesting. Samaria's king would be cut off 
as the foam upon the water. Now, the Hebrew word for foam is the word ketsef, and it means a chipped off splinter. A ketsef is a, a chipped off splinter, and it comes from the Hebrew word katsaf, which literally means to crack off. But figuratively, it's also used to mean to burst out in rage or to burst out in anger. So a day was coming when the people and their king would be taken captive and exiled. They, they would simply disappear like a small piece of driftwood carried away on the surface of an ocean wave. I caught up, I caught up with the, the foam uh, on the water and it would just be caught up and, 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 and it would drift away. So the foam itself re represents actually the rage and the anger of these people. A day was coming when the people would see their sites of evil worship, the core of Israel's sin. Their evil sites of worship destroyed and overgrown with thorns. Verse 8, the high places also of Abba and the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. And then they shall say to the mountains, cover us or come upon us and to, to the hills fall on us. It would, it would also be a day, as, as we're told in the last part of the verse, when the people would face God's wrath and cry out in terror for the mountains and the hills to bury them. This would only happen because they failed in carrying out the charge given to them by the Lord. And by the way, the charge that was given to them by the Lord was not one that was very recent. This goes all the way back to the time that they spent in the wilderness. They were warned that long before. They were given that admonition that long before. And it was written down as the law, both the law and the second law given. That's the book of Deuteronomy. But in Numbers 33, we'll start there, Numbers 33, verse 52, it says, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures. Notice, all their images, destroy all their molten images, and quick and, and quite plucked down all their high places. Destroy their, their pictures or images, destroy their molten images, and quite pluck down all their high places. All the places where they did all this worship. And even in the second law, the, the law of Deuteronomy, or, the, or the, the, the law given in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, where it says, you shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods. Upon the high mountains, and upon the hills, and under every green tree. <clears throat> and you shall overthrow their altars, and break their pillars, and burn down their groves with fire. Now, let me ask you this. Does this sound like a suggestion or does this sound like a command? Sounds like a command to me. And that the command does not, does not waver. The, the command does not change. They're in the land. They go through the land. They're told what to do. But if they don't do it, then they're, they're, they're making the rules now. And they're telling God, okay, Lord, you know, we did that a little bit when we came into the land. You know, we, you know. But how soon was it that they didn't do what they should have done? Remember this little town called Ai? Or Ai? Ai? Ai. 
was so small they only had two letters for their name. And yet they, they thought, yeah, no problem. You know, it was a little town. That town beat, beat them. They began to trust in themselves and not in God. And they became disobedient. So God is not suggesting, he's commanding. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. You shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. You, and then he says, you shall not do so unto the Lord your God. What, what it means is you shall not worship that same way. You shall not worship the Lord that way. That's what verse 4 means. You shall not worship the Lord that way. So that was the command. And getting back to verse 8 of our text, the people would make the plea out of desperation. They make the plea of, of cover us, uh, fall upon us, begging the mountains to fall on them. It, it's interesting that a similar plea will be made by unbelievers in the tribulation period in response to the terror of God's wrath in the sealed judgments of Revelation chapter 6. Notice what it says in Revelation 6 verse 12 and following. I'm, we're going to really see what I want you to see in, in verse uh, 16 and 17. But let's start at verse 12. And I beheld, and this is John, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that an amazing statement? Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Who, by the way, is also the Lion of Judah. But the very fact that it says the Lamb of God is reminding them what Jesus came to do for them that they rejected. They rejected him as the Lamb of God. They rejected his salvation. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? That is why the church will not be here during that time. And this is actually speaking of the earlier part of the tribulation, not the middle toward the end. It's speaking about the earlier part. The great day of his wrath is coming. Who shall be able to stand? Wrath begins, folks. God's wrath 
begins at the beginning of the tribulation. I mean, doesn't that make sense? The tribulation period. Oh, but there's the great tribulation that lasts three and a half years. No, that's just the intensity is going to be turned up. But wrath begins. And you know how it begins? It begins with deception. Because you have to be deceived first. That's why when we talked about the, the, the four horsemen of, 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 uh, of Revelation chapter 6, it begins with deception. A white horse, a rider on it, with a bow but no arrows. Peace. And yet, beware of those who say peace and safety because then sudden destruction will come. Jesus also spoke of this on, on his way to the cross. Think about that for just a moment. What Jesus is going to say here in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is, 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 is being helped carrying you know, his, his cross beam by Simon the Cyrene. But he's, a, he's bloody. His back is ripped. He's wearing a purple robe that isn't purple anymore, but dark, dark red. bleeding over his face from the thorns on his head. And yet in verse 28 it says, But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming into which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. And the hills, to the hills, cover us. And then he said, for if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Simple translation, if they're doing this to an innocent man, what will they do to you who are guilty? Now, you can relate that in a, in, a, in a very near sense of time because 40 years after Jesus is, is crucified, Rome destroys Jerusalem, kills a million Jews in Jerusalem, and the rest are scattered into the ends of the earth. Judgment came. But you can also apply it to the end time as, as we've already read in Revelation. It, it will be again the same thing. The wrath is going to be that intense that they would say mountains, hills, fall on us, cover us. We can't take this. As we go on, the Lord was now charging the people with being morally depraved. Look at verses 9 through 12 of Hosea 10. It goes back to something that we also read in chapter 9 of a place called Gibeah. O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. Now notice again, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah which means the very same sins that were being dealt with in, in Gebeah, you've got to carry it on and you still have it going on here in, in, the, uh, in the northern kingdom this many years later. 
There they stood. The battle in Gebeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. It, it, didn't, it didn't heal the situation. It is in my desire that I should chastise them and the people should, shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. And Ephraim as in, as, is as a heifer that, that is taught. In other words, Ephraim is like a cow that was, that was trained or an ox that was trained and loveth to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. And then, he, and then the Lord says to them, sow to yourselves, through the prophet, he says, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon. So there is, there's, the, there's the, uh, the, uh, the exhortation. Listen, sow to yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up the fellow ground. Well, let's get back over to nine, verse 9 because we want to look at this issue with Gebeah one more time. Because this is the second time in two chapters that we see Gebeah mentioned. The other time is in, <clears throat> in uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Gebeah, just to recall to your memories. Gebeah was the place where a Levite and his concubine stayed for a night on their journey home. And you can read this in Judges chapter 19, verse uh, 19, actually from 19 through 20, chapter 20. <clears throat> but while they were there in Gebeah, the, the perverted men of the city wanted to have sexual relations with the Levite. But instead, they settled for the concubine. And of course, they abused her sexually until she died. In other words, they raped her until she died. That same wicked spirit that had gripped Gebeah continued to spread until it permeated society. You see, they, they went after the tribe of Benjamin because the, the, the ones who committed this was, were from that tribe. And, and the Levite you know, rose up with all these people that thought this was a terrible crime and they, they went out and they you know, massacred a lot of people. But did it help? And of course, the thing is, it didn't. As I said, the, the wicked spirit that had gripped Gebeah continued to spread until it permeated society. And the people of Israel obviously defied God and persisted in this sort of wicked behavior, which prompted the Lord to pronounce his coming judgment upon them. You see, the, the world was, was, was destroyed once by flood. Did that change anything? Now, see, this is not God's mistake. Don't look at it as if God made, you know, God did this and he said, well, I, I did this because now they, they, they need to, you know, they need to reform and, and they never should live that way again. No, I mean, eight people, you know, the, the, uh, three, uh, four couples actually, you know, Noah and his wife and then his three sons and their wives. And then they went and spread out throughout the whole earth and, and, and developed and, and established all the nations of the earth then. But what happened after all of that? You would think that they had listened and paid attention to what had happened and they would pass on the message to their, to, you know, to their descendants and the descendants would pass on the message that we have a God that we need to honor and that we need to love and we need to serve. Some did. 
but many didn't. The whole world was populated with mostly unbelievers who went back to doing what they had done before the flood. Which, by the way, there were giants in the land after, after the flood. But the flood was to destroy all who were on the earth, and many were, were giants because of the relations with the fallen angels. And so, anyway, we can uh, pick up on that another time. So as a result of the people's wicked behavior and the corruption of their society, the Lord would punish the people by allowing other nations to conquer and enslave them. That's verse 10. It is in my desire that I should chastise them and the, the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. The reference to the two furrows would be like referencing double sins. They were guilty of multiplied sins and guilty of forsaking God and turning to false gods and idols. So those were the two sins, the forsaking God and turning to false gods and idols. Those were their two furrows. Second, the Lord would judge the people by putting the yoke of bondage on both Israel and Judah. That's verse 11. And Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn, but I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. Up until that time, Ephraim or Israel had been like a trained cow and yoked while threshing the grain. Yeah, you, didn't have to, you didn't have to yoke a, a cow that was already big enough and, and strong enough to, you know, and, and that was already trained by the yoke to tread the grain. You didn't have to, you didn't have to put a yoke on it. But now the Lord was going to put a yoke upon the people and force them to do the heavy work of breaking up the unplowed ground. So the clear picture here is Israel being led in captivity by Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah being led into captivity by Babylon. So now the yoke of bondage would be upon them again. And they would serve these nations, these heathen pagan nations, because they had forsaken the God who said, if you will obey my law and you will obey me and love me. Remember now, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and thy mind. But if you don't, then there's consequences. Not because I don't love you, because I love you and I've given you so much and yet you've, you've forsaken me. God's heart was utterly broken over the people's behavior, their moral depravity and their, their other acts of violence. But even in the midst of their wickedness, the Lord still loved his people. That's a hard, you know, that's, that's a hard thing for us, but at the same time, it shouldn't be a hard thing for us. Because as I've oftentimes said, you know, we look in the mirror and that, that's enough to really scare us. Well, I don't mean in a, you know, like a scary way. Uh, well, yeah, maybe sometimes it is because in the morning we don't look real nice. 
can look pretty scary. But <clears throat> no, you know, it, it's, it's about who we are. I mean, you, we, we need to realize, you know, I, I, need, I need the Lord every morning. I need, I need to surrender myself every day. I, I need to die to myself every day. We talk, we've been talking about what Jesus said when he said, take up your cross and follow me and die to yourself. So, so he offered them a final opportunity to repent. Look at, look at verses, verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up the fallow ground. Fallow ground, I mean, fallow ground is, 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 is hard ground. It's, it's, uh, sometimes it's new ground that hasn't been plowed. Eventually it gets hard on the top. Sometimes if you've seen pictures of, of ground out in the you know, desert after a rain, you know, after a few days or whatever, you get this, these clods that are real thick and they got all these cracks in them, you know. That's fallow ground. And underneath, you know, the, the, you know, the, the ground is softer, but on top it's hard. It's disheartened because of the sun and, and the wind. You know, after a rain, of course, it got wet, but then, you know, the, the, the sun and the wind dry it out. Then it becomes hard and you really can't do anything with it. You have to break it up. You have to churn it up so that you can actually use it to plant and to sow. And, the, and he uses that, that language, sow to yourselves, in righteousness. Because if you sow in righteousness, you reap in mercy. And then you break up the fallow ground. You break it up because that's how you begin to sow a seed that's going to take root. A good seed. A fruitful seed in righteousness. For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. So three things. First, the people had to sow righteousness in order to reap God's mercy and love. In other words, they had to turn completely away from their wicked lifestyle. They had to turn to the Lord and obey his holy commandments. And if they heeded his call to repentance, he would save them from the coming judgment. And second, they had to begin to live a new life which was symbolized by breaking up the fallow ground or unplowed ground. And up to that time, their lives had been like, like ground that had never been turned over and opened to the Lord. They needed to break up the stony ground of their hearts so that they could receive God's word. Thirdly, the people had to seek the Lord. Verse 12 says, it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Forsake those unrighteous thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon and time and time again, the, you know, this, this is, is, is being laid out before his own people every time that they're in this troublesome attitude of wanting to do their own devices, wanting to follow their own ways and their own hearts. 
Ezekiel 18, verses 30 through 32 says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. But then notice that he says, Repent. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. Turn away, completely away, and go in another direction from that way. Return, uh, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. So iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed. And make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. You see, God is a God of life. He's not a God of death. But because he's a God of justice and of righteousness, he has to judge what is unrighteous and ungodly. And lastly, the Lord charged his people with depending upon their own strength to save them. The last three verses, verses 13 through 15 of our text. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst trust in thy way and the multitude of thy mighty men. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled as Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. Shalman was probably Shalmaneser of Assyria. And, uh, and Beth Arbel is a, is a, not really, not sure about it. There's a place called Arbel up in the northern part of Israel. Uh, and Beth means, of course, uh, Bet means um, uh, house, so the house of Arbel. But obviously, it was a scene of this uh, uh, terrible uh, happenings that, that took place during this, this war. And the mother, it says, was dashing pieces upon her children. So Bethel, do, do unto you because of your great wickedness. And in a morning shall the king of Israel utterly cut, be cut off. That problem seems to pop up in every, in every generation of people. Problem of people wanting to say, you know what? I, I I can pretty much take care of myself. I can save myself. Uh, they reject the truths of God and the trust in what they believe is right in their own hearts. They trust in what they believe is right in their own hearts. That's what I meant to say. And, and if you happen to believe that way, then you need to listen to to this. We're going to here close very quickly. But you need to listen carefully because if, if this is the way you believe, that you trust in what you believe is right in your own hearts. Proverbs 14 verse 12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The last two, chap the, the last two verses of chapter 10 refer to Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, who would attack the northern cities of the northern kingdom. Beth Arbel being in the region of Naphtali. And from there they would come down and conquer the whole of the, nation, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Now, what it describes is a destruction, the destruction of the Assyrians that would be horrible as in any war. The women and children would be crushed and cut in pieces. Why, though? Why? Why would that happen? Why would this be a warning to the children of Israel? Because of their great wickedness, their wickedness, and their refusal to repent. It was their wickedness that God was judging. And it wasn't pretty. It never is when women and children are involved in that way. But it isn't God. It isn't like the world today that said, well, if God was so wonderful and God was so holy and all of these, you know, loving and, and whatnot, why does he make people suffer? What does that tell you about them? They're ignorant. Ignorant of, of the word of God. And they're ignorant of the cross. They're ignorant of what God already did because man's sin was so bad. Listen to the words of Jeremiah. I'm going to close with this. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. You'll recognize the last two verses. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. What were the words of the people in, in Israel? There is no hope. But here he says, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope of the, the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaves shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. And here's verses 9 and 10. The heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try or test the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. I, the Lord, search the heart. He still does it today. That's why David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and, a renew, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. I, the Lord, search the heart. I don't know what some people are thinking in churches today. It's not, it's not about the Lord, it's about them. Where it does touch us is, where are we with the Lord? Where's our heart with God? Is it safe in Christ? And does it stir us to draw closer to the Lord and does it stir us to become more in the image of Christ.